Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Happy October. Happy Monday. Uh, welcome to my October uh, uh, session of my, my webinar. This month, we're going to talk about coverage issues. For those of you joining me here for the very first time, uh, my name is Tashia Rasool. I am a partner here at Lois Law Firm. I oversee the Construction Defense Practice Group, where we handle cases um, that arise uh, out of construction accidents. That's all I do, that's all my team does, so we're very specialized. Um, I'm also the author of the New York um, Construction Defense uh, Handbook, which I'm in the process of updating for a brand new um, 2022 version. So if you'd like to get a copy of that, hard copy or PDF copy, definitely reach out to me and I'll make sure you're on the list to get it. All right, uh, for those of you who um, have been following me for the past almost two years now, thank you for doing so and thank you for joining me here today. So what are we gonna discuss today? We are going to talk about coverage issues and we'll talk specifically about who is covered under a wrap-up policy. As you know, my focus has been wrap-up policies, specifically OSIPs. Um, and there are a lot of issues that come up in terms of coverage, so we'll go through those. We'll talk also about the kind of coverage uh, disputes inside that, that arise in the workers' comp claims. I'll talk a little bit about a couple of the things we've litigated this year and the things that really makes my blood boil. Um, and I'll give you some pointers also. Uh, we'll also talk about... Um, how, how to best prepare for coverage issues and uh, the documentation that we need, which is really key in addressing these coverage issues. And as always, there is a live Q&A um, session in the end. Uh, the question box looks like this. Just type your question in there and hopefully I'll see them to uh, be able to give you a live answer. All right, so let's get into it. Who's covered under a wrap-up policy? So, quick recap. A wrap-up policy is one that's, um, that's set up for a specific project, and it has uh, a lot of uh, requirements as to who can be covered. The most common type is a, an OSIP. It's called an Owner-Controlled uh, owner Insurance Program, and then the less common, but not so less common, uh, it's, it's, it's one that's kind of like less in New York at least. It's a CSIP. It's the Contractor-Controlled Insurance Policy. Um, the judges don't know the difference, sad to say, so they all refer to them as a wrap-up. So for consistency, I'll try to say wrap-up. But because I'm so used to the OSIPs, I will slip up and say OSIP. I'm talking about the same thing. All right, so who's actually covered? Now, the contractors that are working on a project that is um, covered by a wrap-up have to be what we call enrolled in the project. So they might be there legally. They might enter into a contract with the general contractor to do work on the project. But if they don't follow the formalized process for getting onto the project, which means uh, submitting an application to the OSIP administrator and getting approval through them, they will not be covered on the job site. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, why would they be there if they're not gonna be covered? Certain type of work and certain phases of the project are just not covered under the RAPA policy or the OSIP policy. And it could be for any number of reasons, um, potential exposure, uh, it's gonna be only for 
a um, under a certain number of hours, under a certain uh, contract value, sometimes it might not be worthwhile to uh, provide coverage for the subcontractor. Hazardous waste materials vendors are usually excluded from a wrap-up. So if you're seeing a claim where the claimant is an asbestos handler, oh, double-check your policy and your enrollment documents and the policy manual to see whether um, that's actually covered. It's a common one that we see. It's generally excluded because of the nature of the business. And in that particular situation, the subcontractor's operational policy is the one that's going to be liable for the claim. Uh, demolition may not be covered in many wrap-ups. A lot of the clients that I, um, I, I, I work for, they do not cover the demo phase in their, their projects um, for any number of reasons. The number one is usually the potential exposure could be extreme given um, the actual kind of work, right? Demo breaking things and so forth. And in those particular situations, the contractors are required to provide their own policies for coverage. All right, what's covered under the wrap-up now? So we just went through the who's, who's or who, the who's, the who are covered under the policy. We'll talk about the what's now, right? What exactly is covered? So let's keep in mind that the, the main concept of the wrap-up is that it covers a specific project which comes with a specific location. And we're talking about a specific street and avenue or a specific section of a block. It's very, very precise what exactly is covered. Um, specific time period is also covered. So if it's a big project that it's expected to go over the course of three years, it's going to cover either the entire three years or it's going to be one year at a time with a renewal accordingly. Um, there are very uh, specific uh, parameters that are usually outlined in the policy manual. Um, this gives us a good idea of what exactly is covered in um, under under the wrap-up. So it's something you should always be requesting from your OSIP administrator, your wrap-up administrator, or the owner or the contractor who's responsible for the policy. Um, and definitely provide it to your attorneys as this will be referenced several times during a coverage dispute. So some coverage issues that arise. Um, we see these all the time. Whoops, of course I went too far. We see these all the time in um, the, the, the coverage claims that we handle. So first of all, many make the assumptions that all work that's being done on the project would be covered by the OSIP. I can't tell you how many hearings I've gone to, and the first thing our adversary says is, oh, it was a wrap-up project, the wrap-up policy should, should cover it. And then you actually look into who the actual employer is, the kind of work the claimant was doing, and we're like, hold on, no, full stop, right there. Because they were actually on the project doesn't mean they're covered. If they're not enrolled, they would not be covered. Let's talk about the enrollment process for a little bit. When the, when the wrap-up program is created, there is an application process that's, that's designed. So any uh, subcontractor that wants to work on the project must complete the application process. And you know, it's providing basic information, including the kind of work they're doing, the bids and so forth, the cost that they're going to, um, uh, endure for the, the the work that's being done in the project and so forth. This has to be submitted to the OSIP administrator or the wrap-up administrator and then approved in order to be enrolled. 
then there's just a master list, a rolling master list of the employers that are that are enrolled on the project. One of the issues I have seen with the enrollment documents though, it is a live document and it's constantly updated. So when uh, a contractor ends its job, it might be removed from the list. So one of the things I've been telling my clients to do is to have actual PDF uh, copies for specific time periods. The problem is it's hard to prove a negative sometimes, right? If they're not on the list today as an enrolled contract uh, contractor, um, does it mean that they weren't in the list yesterday or they were in the list yesterday or last year? Were they on the list, not on the list? It's kind of hard to prove whether they were enrolled or not. And then we would have to get someone to actually testify as to who updates the documents, when they're updated, and try to scramble for other documents, which, again, it's kind of hard to prove the negative. So one of the things to keep in mind is for the first six-month period, uh, six period or the first three-month period of the year, then the second three-month period, try to store that information somewhere showing which contractors were actually enrolled and not enrolled on the project and then still have someone lined up to testify to, to, to it, right? Because the first argument that, that's gonna be made is, well, who knows if this is an accurate document? Who's actually in charge of this document and making the changes? Date of loss. This is something that comes up in our um, occupational disease claims, which I will talk about my frustrations a little later, but um, it's, it's definitely an issue that comes up and it, um, you know, it depends on uh, wh whether we have coverage for the, the job site when the claimant's actually working there or the date of disablement and so forth. And the phase of the project, like I mentioned earlier, sometimes demo is not covered, um, sometimes uh, concrete is not covered, electrical is not covered. It would be specified in the policy manual what's covered and what's not covered. Accidents that occur off the job site. This is something we've been seeing more and more. And the first, so the underlying issue that we have been dealing with is, well, it was uh, in the course of employment or arising out of the employment, for example, a um, authorized coffee break or lunch break or something like that. Now, let me tell you, if you have one of these coming in, deny it, please deny it. We have been successful in a couple of cases this year where the, the accident did not happen on the job site, within the four sides of the job site, and we've been successful in getting, the, um, getting out of coverage. It took a trial, it took the testimony of an underwriter, production of policy, the policy manual, all of the information that we need, and we've been successful at getting out of it. However, I will know there's no third department authority on the issue. So we're continuing to fight the good fight here. Um, but I, I recommend, uh, even if the employer says, you know, well, we, we sent him off the job site to go get something for us. I think we should deny it. You should speak with your attorney, go over the law, go over the facts, and see if you can come up with a defense that might very well uh, prevent you from being stuck with yet another unnecessary claim. The other big issue that we've been seeing and litigating heavily in our end is are the occupational repetitive injury claims. Now, let me tell you, these claims make me so mad, so mad, because we've seen so many where the claimants are working on the job site for five days, or he last worked on the job site for two days, 
and they're quick to file the claim against the, the, the carrier for the wrap-up. They're quick to claim that the wrap-up policy is a liable policy. Now tell me, the claimant's been a plumber for 20 years, and all of a sudden, one day, and my job site is creating this injury, and why should my wrap-up policy be liable, right? It should be the employer's operational policy, especially in situations where the claimant's been working for the same employer for the past 15, 20 years. Why is my wrap-up getting wrapped up in this? I don't get it. This is something we've been fighting. We've been trying to educate the judges. We've been trying to educate our adversaries, and we have been successful. There are some of them that are still on appeal. Um, I think the, the, the board is just having a hard time applying the law and understanding the, the, the concept of the wrap-up and the purpose of the wrap-up policy. There was this case you've probably heard of, Darkon. It was one that we were relying on for a while that says that the, um, the wrap-up policy cannot be liable for a, an occupational claim or, or you know, a, a repetitive injury claim that occurred on, or, or that allegedly accumulated as a result of the claimant's work on the job site. However, it was kind of a wishy-washy decision. Um, we were successful sometimes, but not, but then the board clarified and they retracted what they were their, their analysis of it. Um, so we're still trying at the trial level to really dispute these cases. We do have a couple of them on appeal. Um, so I will keep you updated, but my recommendation would be never accept these occupational repetitive injury claims as chances are your wrap-up policy is not liable for them. All right, so how do we prepare to handle these coverage disputes? All right, so call me, call one of my attorneys, that's only half of the battle, right? We actually need documents. I kid you not, when we're presenting these arguments in court, the judges are confused. They, they don't understand what we're saying. So we need to like upload documents, mark them up, show them what we're talking about, explain everything in detail. And it's going to help us. It's going to help your attorney to defend your coverage issue if you provide the documents that we're asking for. So. First of all, we need to know who exactly uh, the policy covers, right, or what project. I will tell you this, I've seen some very poorly written policy. I think I might need to kind of like branch off and go like train how to write policies or something because a lot of the policies we see don't have the location or the, um, the, the, the job site that is actually being covered. And this usually presents an issue in court. Well. All right, Mr. Sewell, you're here saying that your wrap-up policy doesn't cover, but your policy doesn't state the location. It just says all projects or no projects. What's going on there? We need more information. Um, there's something called the policy binder, which uh, the insurance carriers usually have. It's generally not produced, um, but it is important to talk to the underwriter for them to tell you what's in the binder, because apparently the binder is... Uh, more detailed and tells you which projects are covered, not covered, a time period. Well, the time period should be in the policy, but it gives more information about um, which project is covered and the kind of work that's also covered. So it might have a notation in there that says hazardous materials not covered, demolitions not covered, uh, plumbing work or electrical work or elevator work is not covered. All right, so we need the policy. We need to know what the policy actually covers. And if we don't have that information, let's get an, on, an underwriter on board 
to educate us so we can present the information to the board also. We also need to know what the claim is for, and I, this ties into uh, the exclusions such as the uh, hazardous materials or other kinds of work that's being done. Because if we have um, a claim by uh, an asbestos uh, removal individual, and they're claim, claiming like pulmonary conditions, and we look at our policy and we're like, wait, this is not covered by our policy. There's no way we should be liable for any um, compensable injury, right? So we need to know exactly what they're claiming and the time period they're claiming that they actually worked on the project. All of the policy documents should be put together in the very beginning. Um, the OSIP administrators are usually very good with assembling everything doing all of the checks to ensure that the employer was actually enrolled and so forth. We just need to get the information from them. And sometimes that's a little bit of a missing step. So um, if you are a claims adjuster, uh, I, would, I would highly recommend when you initially get the claim uh, land in front of you to inquire about all of these things. Get your underwriter on board to testify also. The testimony is very important. No matter how much I read a policy or try to explain it to the judge, they don't see me as an expert on the issue, so we need the underwriters who are the experts. And let's try to get it lined up before the very first hearing. The declaration sheet. Let's talk about that for a little while. This is literally one page that has all of the basic information. Um, a lot of times it's very helpful to have this, but also a lot of times it's necessary to get the full policy from the client because it has more information about the exclusions and so forth, which is important. The declaration sheet though, it has all of the basic information. It tells you which carrier is responsible for the worker's comp, which carrier is responsible for general liability, um, and it usually has a detail about the project um, who is an additional insured on, uh, on, under the policy. It would give you the address of the, the, the project and all of the information that we need, and we can present that in the straightforward uh, coverage issues to show that we have no coverage, right, for a particular job site. Um, and uh, the policy manual, it's something that's also important. Uh, some uh, wrap-up programs provided to us in the very beginning, because it's usually set in stone, and we have that in our file, but there are some of them, it, um, it may change depending on the phase of the project, or if there's a renewal or something like that, but it, 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 it has a wealth of information in it that can help guide us through uh, defending a coverage issue, or even a regular claim um, that, 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 ar that arose out of a construction accident on a wrap-up program. All right, so, that's it. I know today was kind of short and sweet, but that's really it for the coverage issues. The two things that we um, see a lot and we litigate are the ones that I talk about are the occupational and repetitive injuries and um, the, uh, the, the, the coverage issue when the accident do not arise on the job site. Uh, one more thing I'd like to add, another issue um, that we have been seeing recently is that of Section 56. Um, which is when if the subcontractor does not have coverage, coverage travels up to the general contractor and they try to tack it onto our policy. Um, this goes back to ensuring that the subcontractor is actually enrolled on the project, 
right? Keep that in mind. Enrollment is very, very important because they're there legally through a contract, doesn't mean they're actually covered by the project. All right, so that's it. Um, November, I've been promising everyone that we're going to talk about Kelly and Burns. If you have any burning questions before them, send them to me and I'll try to address them uh, during the webinar. I know this creates some confusion, some anxiety for us, myself included. So I'll go over what exactly they mean, what they stand for, how to do the calculations, and most importantly, how to use the calculations in determining your potential exposure when considering Section 32 settlements or global settlements um, and presenting those at mediations. So we'll talk about uh, all of those things and um, hopefully it'll be very helpful for you. All right, so let's see if we have any questions. All right, I don't see any questions. All right, if anything comes up, you have any questions, feel free to email me or call me. You know what, give me a call. I'd like to talk to you. I like chatting once in a while, right? So give me a call. Uh, our filters are actually really uh, high over here too. So some of your emails have been getting stuck in them. So my apologies for responding a week or two later. It's when they show up in my junk folder. But if you call me, you'll get an answer right away. All right. Thank you all for joining. I will see you here next month. Enjoy October, the start of fall, Halloween. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you.